Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. So, hello and welcome, uh, Professor Jan, of Robotics Podcast. Uh, such an honor to have you in the podcast. First of all, I would like to ask you how you would like to introduce and define yourself for the audience who will first time listening to you. Well, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. And thank you so much for providing this podcast to the entire community. It's extremely valuable. Um, I would describe myself as someone who loves science and has had um, a career that is largely marked with um, battling with failure and self-doubt, but thankfully having really great mentors who have supported me to be where I am. Um, and so on, on the science side, I'm a chemist, but yeah. really we view ourselves as kind of like molecular engineers. We are yeah. just fascinated by how molecules interact and how yeah. we can use those interactions to build functional systems. And so we and we especially yeah. love biomolecules because nature has given these incredible properties. And so we yeah. design molecular systems, we build them and we test them. But really for me, I view my primary job as a leader and a mentor because I don't get to go into lab and do many experiments or any these days, um, but I get to work with really, really incredible people. And so my job is to uh, help each of those people have, have the resources and advice that they need um, and encouragement to be at their best, their best. Wonderful, yeah. So I would like to go for your childhood. We know that childhood affects you uh, where you grow up. I'm curious about your childhood. Do you have any memories about being curious about science or technology as a kid? Any memories about that? Oh, that's a really great question. I mean, I'm sure I ran uh, many a backyard science experiment, um, you know, that involved finding bugs and seeing what they did or mixing things in the kitchen and making a big mess. I will say though that early in my childhood I was actually much more interested in math. If you Mm. would ask me how I felt about science I probably would just thought like eh you know that's Mm. that's not something that seems particularly exciting but I really 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 love math. I just love thinking about numbers and how you can arrange numbers and all the different pathways to arrive at the same answers and really understanding that was was a lot of fun. But then in high school, you know, maybe I I had okay math teachers, but I had really, really outstanding science teachers. And and Mm -hmm. as an after school activity, my friends convinced me to get involved in Science Olympiad. And that's really where I, I fell in love with science. Um, and so that was kind of the formative experience. The other you know, interestingly formative experience is yeah. that I actually should not have been on a path towards science. My, you know, as I was going from middle school to high school, my eighth grade science teacher, my middle school science teacher had kind of put me in the category of students that was like not good at science. And so I actually was not allowed to take biology in the ninth grade. Um, I was supposed to go into high school and be on like a non-science intensive track as opposed to the science intensive track because I was not good at science according to my eighth grade teacher. Um, and, and that was actually a really formative experience for me because I think that if I'd been told that I was really good at science, it would have felt high pressure and I might've felt like I had to do this to live up to other people's expectations. But in some ways being told that I was 
actually really not skilled at this, allowed me to take it up as a sort of hobby in high school. And I think that in a lot of ways that led me to enjoy it a lot more and to see it as something that I'm really, really passionate about. And then thankfully, I also had mentors who intervened, you know, science teachers intervened and said, wow, you're really into this and you are good at this and, and we need to find a way to kind of integrate yeah. you back into the science intensive track so yeah. that you'll be ready for a science major in college. And, and yeah. so that was a, a, a you know, an experience that you would not necessarily think of as being one that would push you towards science, but was likely really formative for me. Yeah, I think this really, really important point when you maybe junior and still maybe passionate about something and your teacher or maybe supervisor say they are not good enough in that. And I think maybe many people could uh, face that in their journey. They bash about something, but people will just try to tear you down and don't believe in you. And some people give up. So I don't know, has you at this age, how you fade that, that someone told you you're not good enough, you're not going to be in this track. How is that? Oh, hard? yes. You've made an outstanding point that this happens all the time. And it it wrecks so many careers. I mean, I think maybe there's a field where I should have been and I could be contributing even more, but I didn't pursue yeah. it because someone told me I can't. And you're just so heartbreakingly seeing the number of people who are discouraged by bad mentors. And then we lose their contributions to our fields. And that is just such a tremendous, yeah. tremendous loss. I, I would say that the way that I've learned to deal with it, I mean, part of it is just my own personality that I kind of joke that if you want me to do something, you should probably tell me that I can't. Um, yeah. Because if, if someone says, oh, I just don't think you'll be good at that. I'm like, oh, I'll show you. You know, I actually yeah. see this, this trait in my seven-year-old now. Uh, you know, the way we get him sometimes inspired to his homework is we say, oh, I don't, I don't know if you can do that. He's like, I will show you. <laughs> um, yeah. But on a much more practical level, it's just making sure that you have mentors and advocates and friends in your life where when you hear those negative messages of you can't do this, either from the outside or often we are our own worst critics. When you hear that message from the inside where you're telling yeah. yourself that you can't do something, that you know that you can go to that group of people and they will be straight with you. You know, they might say, yes, this is going to be very, very challenging, but I think that you can do it. You have the ability to achieve this. You'll need good strategy. You'll need hard work, but you have the capability. And so if you can surround yourself with a group of people like that and be that person for them as well, yeah, that can be a really, uh, I found that to be a very yeah. effective strategy for overcoming those voices that cast doubt on your abilities. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would like to thank you also for your outstanding role in advocating through your Twitter. So I'm curious how it all started because let's be honest sometimes if you are a professor already I don't have to care about all these problems I, and we have the tendency just do science and that's I'm just reflecting what other people say that it just we have to focus all in science and you don't have to care about this issue. Um, if you speak about that, you are not really scientists, just do the work and that's it. But why, why, first of all, for you, if you're already established in your career, why do you have to bother yourself to fight with these uh, rights over Twitter? What is the motivation for you at start, when it started? 
Yes, that's that's a great question. Um, I mean, I I ended up getting on Twitter a little bit by accident. It's this wild story that goes back to trying to win a crash pad at a climbing gym competition and my friend starting a Twitter account for me. And then it actually had no posts because then we realized the competition was on Instagram and not on Twitter. But then when we were advertising for a new postdoctoral position in our lab in a new area of research, actually bridging into education research. So my friends had been telling me about Twitter over the years and telling me I should use it more. So I thought, oh, this could be a good way to you know, advertise this position. And so I had to you know, reset my password and all of that stuff because I had never really used my account. But then once I had it, it you know, kind of the, the psychologists that make Twitter and other social media sites sort of addictive, you know, that won me over in that I'd be waiting in line at the grocery store with nothing else to do. And of course, then we all pull out our phones and I thought, well, oh, there's this app and now I'm logged into it. I'll see what other people are talking about on there. And, and it, it wasn't so much that that was the moment that I started advocating for mm. changes to academic culture, but rather it was that I had been growing in my awareness of the need for change and starting to advocate for that in my real life and starting to just think differently about the role of a faculty member that like you said you know the the culture of academia tells you in a lot of ways that your role is to be a researcher uh, and that is absolutely true but i think again going back to how i introduced myself at this point in my career as a faculty member the more important role is to be a mentor and a leader. And that just wasn't being talked about a lot, but I was starting to, within the context of my own group and my own department, my own university, talk about that and explore ways for what that looks like in uh, you know, the practical aspects of mm -hmm. managing your lab and, yeah. um, and mentoring others. And so when I started being active on Twitter, I, I guess I was just really fortunate that the people I initially followed or the discussions that we seen yeah. were people talking about exactly that. And it was students talking about how the, the lack of that, you know, the, the focus only on research and non-leadership and mentorship was negatively impacting them. And I see this in my real life, I've seen it on Twitter. And it just kind of clicked that like, oh, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. I've been thinking deeply about this. And I want to be a part of this conversation. I will say though that, you know, while I'm active in posting on Twitter, I, I mostly see it as a place where I go and just learn. I learn so much from, from your posts, from the posts of so many other people who are willing to share their ideas and, and share their stories. And I think it's been really self-reinforcing because the more active I've been, then the more often I'm connecting with people who are sharing their stories of how mm -hmm. the current sort of deficits in our academic culture mm -hmm. are harming them or stories of how a leader or mentor made a positive impact on them. Mm -hmm. And then that just fuels even more passion to keep yeah. doing, yeah. you know, the, the little bit, I know that, the, that my impact is so limited, the impact I can have, but, you know, I want to do whatever I can to try to yeah. do improve academic culture for early career researchers. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think your tweets and especially the word that you say is powerful and concise and just addressing what we face.
But maybe the reality, that's the point. Some students, especially junior research students, suffer in silence, you know, if the lab environment is not supportive. And there are many scenarios for that. And of course, there are good ones, but maybe the majority um, of the stories we have that the lab environment is toxic a little bit. And if you want to, to change a culture, sometimes it's tricky, which uh, when you have a leader expose the image of maybe I am inclusive, I care about each one, and deep down inside the lab wall, there's different stories happen and different dynamics. And if you follow the strategies inside the university, also is not helping you from Buddhist manual, et cetera. So we know that, everyone know that. And um, I don't know from when you write this word, is, what do you think the, maybe, because it's a large community and different discipline, it's so large, but in academia in general, do you think they are receptive about these words? Do you think really, really, they care about that? Or we are human, and at the end of the day, scientists are human, and they have this ego nature and jealousy, and you know, this kind of behavior, they have it in the end of the day. So I don't know how you see this, this problem really addressed in academia. Oh, that that's really deep what you said, that you're, you're so right that there are a lot of people whose actions probably don't match that. Well, there are a lot of people whose actions don't match their words. You know, to some extent, that's just being human, that we're all imperfect. I mean, I certainly will say that my actions don't always match my words. Mm -hmm. it, and you know that isn't like oh I you know I'm this terrible human being I mean I'm human right mm -hmm. we have stressors we have you know in a moment where I'm getting an email that if I don't do something in the next two hours we could risk losing a grant and then I find out that one of my kids didn't turn in an assignment is getting a bad grade in their class I need to address that and then something else happens and then someone walks into my lab you know into my office to give me bad news you know. I'm not going to always be the person I want to be in that moment. And, and I think the differentiator is whether or not we want to grow and improve. You know, it, it's being open to feedback. You know, I've told my group, if I tweet something and I'm not living up to that, you know, that's my view of the person and the leader I want to be. And I know I'm going to fail at that. So again, mm -hmm. I'm a human being. Yeah. But please, please, please tell me when I'm failing at that, you know, either generally, or you can literally send me a tweet and say, Jen, here's this thing that happened where you didn't live up to this. And mm -hmm. I wanna know about that so that I can think about how I do better and how I continue to improve. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as far as the broader community, I, I tend to think that, you know, there's people are, willing to engage in, you know, leadership and mentoring as part of their job as faculty to different extents. And there are some people who are really, really bought in and driven and motivated to do that. There are some people who just don't see that as part of their job and sometimes are very vocal about that as well. That's actually kind of nice because then if possible, early career researchers who say that's not the environment I want to be in can then do everything they can to avoid those environments. But I also think that there's a lot of people who, and, and I would put myself in this category in so many ways, who want to do better, but also 
we very little in our training really prepares us to be leaders or mentors. You know, we work at the bench in grad school. Oh, you're really good at running experiments. Oh, you can generate ideas. You can write papers. You get your postdoc. Oh, okay, now you can maybe be generating the ideas a little bit more, running experiments. And, um, and, and there's not a lot of focus on training in these areas. In our, our graduate and postdoctoral programs, that's something also that I'm very passionate about changing, that it should be part of, of the training. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I'm very proud to see here at Emory um, and we pay attention to within our group. Um, but there's a lot of people who have not had that training and want to do better, but they don't know how. And meanwhile, they're in the same boat of, you know, worrying about losing their grants, trying to get the papers or trying to get tenure, wherever that is, and, and having a family. And, you know, it's not an excuse, but it's it's a little bit of a, a reality. But I think that there's also a, a tremendous potential there that if, um, if people in the community are willing to share resources with each other, this is something I love about Twitter is that we share ideas and resources with each other to make it easy to create a healthy culture within our labs. And so I see ideas on Twitter and I think, oh yeah, I want to use that now in my lab. I try to contribute things out there that, that other people can use. And through our community, I think we can all help each other out. You know, there's no reason not to share resources and to try to lower the barriers for creating healthy lab culture, because as we all do this, we all win. Yeah, that's a great, yeah. So maybe you really stress a good point about being a leader. And when we see how you run a lab, you have to meet certain criteria as a scientist, but we neglect completely how you are compassionate on BBB kind. And that's missing, to be honest, sometimes in, in a leadership. And there is no definition how you run a lab. You just have a papers and publication and granted, and that's it. And sometimes that may be, that's the only criteria we have so far to be uh, appointed to, to lead a group. So maybe I'm curious to ask you, how do you think about leadership? And do you think um, there's maybe a certain test has to be taken for uh, the leader to make sure that he really can run a group and be compassionate and not encouraging toxicity? Because we see sometimes students have to work even in holidays and, and weekends and this is affecting and the next step mental health will we speak about later. And no one to speak up and that's uh, the environment silencing that uh, you have to work like crazy and you have to meet these demands and that's it. It's like a machine at the end of the day. So I don't know how do you see the procedure for appointing someone to be a leader? What's the leadership in that Yes. Um you know, what you've described is certainly the case in many places that it's it's you know, heavily, if not solely focused on research productivity and or future research proposals. Yeah. You know, something that makes me very proud to be at the institution that I am is that we also place a high value on teaching and helping to create and maintain an inclusive environment. And so for faculty applications, you know, this is out in our job search right yeah. now, that you know, you have to submit all of the, you know, your CV and your research plans and your letters of recommendation, but also a statement of your teaching philosophy and a statement outlining your contributions to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then all of those things, you know, all of the materials that are submitted are considered. 
um, are considered as essential parts of the faculty application. And that's really important because, you know, again, just looking at what we've written about how to write these statements, it gets at a lot of the things that you're talking about. You know, when you write a teaching statement, you can show, it gives you an opportunity to show that you are really committed to putting mm -hmm. students' needs in the spotlight, to a student-centered approach to teaching. Um, you can talk about things like inclusive pedagogical practices. How will you ensure that every student who's in your class has an equal opportunity for success? How can you build a culture of mutual respect in your classroom that mm -hmm. where everybody feels welcomed and everybody feels like they belong? Um, yeah. Similarly, in a diversity statement, it's an opportunity to show that you understand the challenges faced by students, um, postdocs, and early career researchers who identify um, with different groups who have been historically disadvantaged in science. It gives you opportunity to talk about what you've done to yeah. promote DEI and what you want to do. And so it's it's something that um, you know allows us to say that that the faculty we want to recruit are people who are strong in all yeah. areas who are really outstanding researchers, really outstanding teachers, and are yeah. really strongly committed to building an inclusive environment in our department. Yeah. We'll catch this later again, but I think maybe the question a mini student will ask about how I can select a supervisor. And I, I, I would like to expand this point because I think even students when listening to that, oh, academia is toxic. Of course, there are really good examples. And I know many people bash about research, but when you're stuck with a people who don't believe in you, it makes it really hard. But when you're selecting a supervisor, especially for um, a student, how you can spot them? Because for example, if you have one student quit the lab or leave the lab, sometimes is the erased data and you can know who've already left the lab. And if you ask alumni as well, they're afraid to speak about the real reality in the lab and ends up they're stuck in this lab. And how you can figure out this lab is really good fit for you. And even the supervisor, is because people say if you find like a psychopath supervisor in the, end, in the beginning, so a charm, and later on they turn the true colors. So that's kind of situation happens most of the time. Sometimes, but I don't know how you can really know that that's a good supervisor. Figure out that. Yes, that that is such an important question, and you're exactly right that that there are all of these things that make it tricky to get at. You know, one of the ones that you point out that's really challenging is especially some of the, the labs that have an unhealthy culture, then members of those labs, because of fear, are even less likely to be candid about what they're experiencing. Whereas a lab that has a healthy culture, people are actually more likely to share kind of both the good and the bad. And, and so you really have to kind of a little bit read between the lines and calibrate for what you're hearing, but that's that's not a good scientific method that you can rely on. No. You know, a few general pieces of advice I, I would give is just right off the bat, you know, broadening your options as much as possible. You know, the person that you work for and the culture of the lab is actually more important than the specific, specific research that you're going to do. You know, I know many students who have joined a lab because of one very specific project they're passionate about, and then maybe they didn't get put on that project or that project didn't pan out and then they have to switch to a different project. And now you're in this lab that you only liked because of that one project and you don't even like the culture of it. Whereas if you can, you know, obviously you wanna find a lab where you're interested in the research, but if, 
it might be your third choice when it comes to specific science, but you're still really excited about it. But it's an amazing mentor and it's an amazing group of people. I would choose that one because you know, your mentor, these are people you're going to interact with hopefully throughout your entire career. And the project is even going to shift over time. And so that ranking of the specific research project, that's such a, a fleeting metric. And so to base your decision based on that is, um, it is going to put you in a position where, where you really limit your options as to finding great mentors. I would say also, uh, well, actually, and just a, a way I like to think about that is I encourage people to think about, you know, not who you want to work for when you're having the best day of your life. Don't, you know, we tend to think about like, well, who do I want to work for when all my experiments are working and life is going really well and all of that. Um, I mean, maybe right now, because there's so many challenges in the world, it's, um, you know, we tend not to think quite so much about that. Um, but I think we still do. And I think it's more important to think about, you know, when you wake up, you do this thought experiment. If you wake up and you're like, my experiments aren't working. I might have to kill my project. My fellowship application just got rejected. And then I just heard about a family emergency that I'm facing. Mm -hmm. Whose office do you wanna walk into on that day? And choose to work for that person because that's gonna help you think about who's gonna be the more supportive advisor. So the other piece of advice I was gonna give is, is that you're absolutely right. You may or may not get good information from current lab members and alumni. Um, one way though that you can look for that information is instead of asking about trying to find stories of negative things, ask about positive things because students and postdocs who are in or have been in labs that have really fantastic mentors will be able to tell you all of these incredibly positive stories and then people who maybe have been in labs without such supportive mentors will just have a lot less to say. So they may not say something negative, yeah. but the lack of an overwhelming number of positive things can be very indicative. And, and also you can ask, you have to be a little careful with this and with any advice you give um, or you get, but you can also ask people in other labs within that department because they, they know people probably in that lab, they see how it is, but they aren't so much um, beholden to the leader of that lab. And so they might be a little bit more candid. But I'd say in all of that, um, it's really important to, you know, take all of that information for what it is, that it's, it's someone's opinion. And if you hear the same thing from a lot of people, you know, then maybe it's worth listening to. But again, you know, you also have to realize that you know, each person has a, a different view of things and also that, especially, you know, for faculty who are from underrepresented groups, it's important to realize that, you know, rumors about them can spread more easily than faculty in the majority groups yeah. and to put everything into that context. Yeah, that's really a good point. Yeah. So maybe I'm curious to you about the mental health because I think that's an issue we have. When I, I work in a campus, even undergrad students, they suffer with mental health issue, especially international ones. So. And if you also stuck in a toxic lab environment, which I hope not in one hope that you won in the future, but it's also cost your mental health and physical well-being. So I don't know how, how do you think how you can cope with that? What's the strategy? Sometimes for even we have a question from the postdoc here asking that there's a lot of pressure to hunt a job, for example, or next application or even publication. But all this pressure, pressure is a continuous pressure and never end. And that's affecting the mental health, as I said. And, and, and at the end of the day, you may be um, wound up that you 
yeah, you maybe become a professor, but you struggle with this mental health issue and you be replicating the cycle again. Hopefully that's not all the case all the time, but it's it's a pressure we have and no one speak about the number of hours or the pressure all the time. I don't know how do you see academia embracing mental health issue. Yeah, so important. Um, you know, I'll start out by saying that, goodness, it should not have to be on students and postdocs. This is where supportive mentors and leaders, the more we reward mentoring, the more we build a culture that values faculty being supportive, the the more we reduce this challenge. And so I, I just have to say that upfront because I think that, you know, certainly there's, you know, graduate students and postdocs who go through really difficult life experiences. And then there's mental health challenges who come out of that, that come out of that, or who, you know, just have always had or for a long time have had chronic mental health challenges. There's certainly all of those circumstances that you know, yes, we absolutely need to have robust systems for mental health care. Um, but I think a lot of the mental health challenges are caused by lack of supportive mentorship and lack of job opportunities, you know, real or perceived faculty who will only support students and postdocs into going into a certain career path like mm -hmm. academia even though jobs may be scarce, or that's not what that person wants to do, just being more supportive of all career paths can be a positive, can have a positive effect on mental health. So, um, so I, I want to own my responsibility as a faculty member and the responsibility of all faculty members in this because we have a tremendous responsibility when it comes to this. Um, I, would, I would say that from the student and postdoc perspective, you're definitely getting the care that you need you know, be proactive about reaching out if there are counseling services available and utilizing that. When I was in graduate school, I had a really stressful juncture with my research project. I also then lost my dad and then very unexpectedly lost my best friend to cancer all within a very short time. And, and I was putting way too much pressure on myself and I, you know, ended up with what was likely clinical depression. And, you know, I didn't think about going and getting help, um, but thankfully had a physician who then told me that I needed to, you know, I think I went in to get my, you know, asthma medication refilled or something. And he asked me how I was doing. And I just started bawling. And he, you know, and then the story came out and he said, you ain't right here, right? Like, we're going to get you to see a counselor this afternoon. And you're going to just walk straight upstairs and go talk to a counselor. Um, and, and so, you know, Again, as faculty, we can make sure that we're encouraging people to use those services. I think as students and postdocs, be proactive in using those services where they're available. I would come back to something I said at the start, again, which is build a supportive community around you. Find other students and postdocs who have ambitious goals but are really authentic and want to be authentic about their struggles and failures and want to support each other and be a person who supports others and you know, others will support you as well. And just sometimes having a place to talk about the struggles that you're facing and to feel support mm -hmm. and to feel like those struggles are normalized mm -hmm. can have a, a huge, huge impact 
as well. But it's, it's extremely challenging. It's a high pressure environment. There are a lot of challenges. And especially right now, those challenges are all magnified by the pandemic and everything else that's happening in our world. I'm curious to ask you, do you think maybe the solution could be regulation? Do you think maybe the student can reach authority or maybe I don't know how do you see the solution for that? What could be reliable solution to mitigate this problem of mental health? If a student don't, don't find, didn't find a support or network for that, what could be solution that universities have to, a regulation do you think you have to apply for institution? Oh yeah, goodness, that's, it's a really complicated problem. And I, I meant to also answer that last part of your question about faculty who have mental health challenges. And that is certainly very real from all of the same reasons that students and postdocs face mental health challenges, right? There's, you know, sudden life circumstances that challenge your mental health. There's chronic mental health challenges that you know, certainly many faculty also have to cope with. Um, and then there's the stress of the job and life that um, can also create challenges. And you know, something I did wanna say about that is that I do tend to see, I see this with also just with, with people who have been in labs with maybe not so, so supportive mentors and then become faculty members. You, know, you tend to kind of go one of two directions. Either you take that experience and say, wow, that was really terrible for me. I want to use my own experience to try to make it better for others. Or some people say, wow, that was really terrible for me. I think I should make it terrible for everyone else. And obviously I think we should do the first of those two things that, you know, as a faculty member, as someone who has had challenges with my mental health in graduate school, and you know, certainly, you know, I have days when I feel better or worse or more motivated or less motivated, using that to develop empathy forever in my lab, being open about that struggle so that others know that they're not alone, encouraging people to talk to me about how I can help. You know, obviously I'm not a counselor or therapist, but I can help them um, access the resources that our university needs. I can obviously reinforce that I encourage people to take time out, out of lab to go and access those resources, to go in, and see a counselor if that's what they need, or, um, you know, be part of uh, a group therapy program or whatever that looks like. Um, and so I think that that's, that's really important as well for us as faculty to take our own experiences and use those for positive, use those to support the people who work with us. You know, from a, a bigger level, you know, I think that there are things that can be done at, all levels, um, from the university, the departments, down to the individual faculty members. And, you know, as someone who's an individual faculty member, at this point in my career, you know, I, I don't have the ability to do much at other levels on this right now, though I hope to in the future. Um, but one of the things I found is really important is just having policies for your lab. And these are the sorts of things that could be at the department or university level, but just having having policies that support mental health. And so we have a policy that you know, says something along the lines of, you know, your mental, physical, and emotional health are the number one priority here. You know, research is a distant second to that. If you don't finish your time in our lab or your career as a healthy whole person, 
then none of it really matters. And so you should absolutely put your mental health first. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's worth saying that because I, you know, I can't even begin to understand, but I have a window into the incredible pressure that grad students and postdocs feel that, you know, research matters and, and research has such an impact on your future career. And so anything that I can do to say like, yes, but please, please, please take care of yourself. You know, hopefully that's a helpful thing um, to be putting out there. And, and then the policy has really specific aspects to it as well of, you know, things like if you need to go see, you know, a counselor or whatever, any sort of a, a medical appointment or just any sort of a life need that happens to fall, you know, during kind of normal work hours, like, please go do that, right? We have Mm -hmm. a very flexible work hour system. I don't want anyone to feel guilty leaving lab at two in the afternoon to go to an appointment. That should absolutely not be a source of additional stress. You know, we can, we can kind of get it, you know, at least not piling on more stressors, like feeling stressed that your advisor will be upset that you went to a counseling appointment at 2 p.m. So, so we have a policy that says, yes, I, I yeah. encourage you to do that. Um, similarly, if you have a family emergency, just take the time you need. You drop me in the policy, something like drop me an email so that I know that you're okay. You didn't just disappear. You don't even have to give me details. Just say, I've had a family emergency. Um, tell, you know, and tell me, if you know how long you'll be out, or if you aren't sure, tell me that too, and take the time that you need to take care of that, and let me know how I can support you. And I think, again, just just articulating those things, it doesn't take away the challenges that arise, but at least prevents there from being additional ones added onto it. Yeah, yeah. And maybe here's a question also from the audience about uh, what about being in maybe not supportive lab and you need sometimes recommendation letter. And sometimes students say they don't get this recommendation letter for this trouble, um, maybe trouble or trouble they have with supervisor. I do not know how you can um, have solution for this problem about recommendation for your next step in career. It's, if we have, if you're really stuck in a lab and it wasn't supportive, but how you can manage this problem of recommendation later. Yes, that's a, a very real problem. And it's one that should not be. It we owe it to students and postdocs to be working to create a culture where this just doesn't happen and nobody should have to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I will say that if you are in that situation, one of the things you can do is to cultivate relationships with other faculty in the department, I know, or in your field. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. departments are very political and all of the other faculty may really, really strongly support your advisor. Yeah. And so you may not feel comfortable going to them to try to explain what's happening, but you can find faculty, you know, in your university, but maybe in a, a neighboring department, you know, a field that's close enough to yours that they can still speak to your research, but they're not you know, as involved in the politics of your department or faculty who are in your field, but are in other departments. And actually this is somewhere where social media can be very, very useful. It can be a great place to form a network so that you have that network when you need it. You know, you don't necessarily want to lead in with that, um, but, but if you are forming relationships with faculty, 
at other institutions, then you have those when you need, you know, it could start as just reaching out for advice. And then, you know, if over time they develop into someone who's a mentor, then they can be someone who helps you out. And, and where I'm going with that is that then when you are applying for positions, you know, if you don't feel like you can ask your advisor for a letter or you don't feel like they'll write a positive one or you're worried about what they might write, you can also, you know, usually you get to submit three or four letters. So you can also go to those individuals who you've identified as supporters and kind of alternative mentors and make sure that they're writing a letter for you as well. Yeah. And if you've built trust with them, you can even, it's a reasonable thing, you know, not all people will do this, but it's a very reasonable thing to ask a faculty member to do, to just speak briefly to, you know, if you're not going to have a letter from your former research advisor, asking that other faculty member if they'd be willing to speak to why that is. You know, it doesn't have to be elaborate, but just saying that, you know, that former mentor was someone who is not particularly supportive and, you know, just the very act of saying, hey, the absence of a letter from that person should not reflect negatively on this candidate. Mm -hmm. Usually that's enough to cover any concerns because I think, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I, I, I think a lot of people are in the same place that, you know, we all know that there are labs that are challenging or, or, or really outstanding students and postdocs who have challenging relationships with their advisors not their fault and that often this can't be controlled. And, and I'll say too that there are certainly students and postdocs where their mentor has passed away and is no longer living and no longer able to write a letter. And this is a very similar thing that's done in those cases where then other people are able to step in and write a letter and say, oh, you know, this is why they don't have a letter from, from their research advisor, but I can speak to their research, I can speak yeah. to their drive, their creativity, their independence, all of these different yeah. things. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. So we have a question here from Kartik uh, Iyer, I hope this is right. He said that too often postdocs and grad students are under um, tremendous pressure to keep working hard and produce results and publish. And right now, due to pandemic, this is very difficult and challenging. However, there isn't much support and we are still expected to go about research as if nothing uh, happened. And how, how do we address this? And I'm also aware that, that uh, since I couldn't do much during the pandemic, it might affect my job chances. Oh, um, this, this is the question that so many people are trying to grapple with right now. I yeah. think those of us who are really passionate about advancing graduate education, yeah are looking at this and saying, how do we, how do we remedy this? I, I will say again that, um, you know, ideally faculty members or mentors have open communication about how the pandemic is. So I'll say if they're faculty listening, you know, something I know I need to do, keep doing better, but that I work on and, and hopefully everyone else is working on, is to really have that open communication with each person about what their circumstances are right now. And given those circumstances, you know, what is realistic for them to be accomplishing in lab? And given what's realistic, what are the highest priorities for them to be focusing on right now? Um, 
But really, there's no easy answers to this. My hope is that as we move forward and the impact of this, you know, increases over time, right? Because we're not, we're not going back to kind of normal life, at least not in the foreseeable next few months. It will likely be several months. And, and for some people who have been dramatically impacted by this, it could be years before things are kind of back to normal. Um, I think that academia as a whole, we need to grapple with how, how do we move forward and ensure equity when people have been impacted to different extents. You know, one thing that I've actually written about is um, for junior faculty, for, um, or sorry, pre-tenure faculty, you know, there's, there was initially a lot of, okay, well, we'll extend your tenure clock or, you know, saying, okay, well, we can extend, you know, the graduation date for graduate students. We can give you more time. But I actually wrote saying, you know, okay, that's a, a short-term kind of, you know, band-aid approach. And that was maybe appropriate when it looked like the pandemic was maybe going to impact us for a few months. But now that this is stretching into, you know, a year or, or more over a year, we really need to think about not how do we add more time? You know, we shouldn't be thinking about how do we just add more time to PhDs? How do we add more time to postdocs? But rather, how do we um, keep changing our review processes um, at all levels so that we allow each individual to speak to how the pandemic has impacted them and their productivity? And then we consider that. We consider each case uniquely in the context of what was achieved and in the face of, of what struggles or what you know, challenges of not having access. You know, some people can't travel to go see a collaborator that they need to go see in order to do work. And, and so that can have a major impact. And so being able to explain that in an application, I think is really important. And I, I do see um, talk that, that that is the direction that we're going to head. And I think that that's really, really important that you know the pandemic has impacted everyone, but it's impacted everyone differently. And it's often in, in probably most ways, if not all, impacted people with the least privilege to the greatest extent. And so we need to be extremely mindful of yeah. considering that when we're reviewing people, you know, whether it's for admissions or jobs or tenure, really at all levels. Yeah, yeah, it's indeed a big problem, yeah. So I'm curious to ask you about uh, the inclusion. What inclusion means to you? Uh, we, we see in academia we have diversity, but we're still not inclusive. How do you see inclusion? And do you think it is um, really deployed? Because as they say, uh, sometimes inclusion is interpreted as an image, just uh, we have diverse inclusion, but we don't have realistic implementation inside uh, the practices of institutions sometimes. And it's tricky that you make sure inclusive. We are diverse, but we maybe we're not inclusive uh, in that case. So how, how do you see inclusion and what's inclusion means to you? Oh, that's a great question of, of what does inclusion mean? Um, you know, I could give, you know, I could read, you know, kind of the, the dictionary yeah. definition for it, but, and my definition is probably pretty close to that, but it, it's essentially when every single person, irregardless of 
their identity or identities feels like they belong and feels like they are treated with respect and that they have access to the environment and the resources that they need in order to have good well-being and to perform at their best. Mm-hmm. And it's when every single person has the benefit of that experience. And as to how we get there, I, I actually think a lot of that comes back to what we started out talking about with leadership and mentorship. Because when we think about you know, the context of a research group, what does that look like? That looks like every member of the group treating each other with respect. So it's people, you know, not cutting each other down, not, you know, obviously not harassing each other, not using language that degrades or um, offends someone. It's all, you know, it's people supporting each other, making sure every person is receiving strong signals that yes, you belong here, you are a valued member of our team. Um, And a lot of that, comes from having leaders who were committed to cultivating that sort of a culture. And it's not something that, you know, I would say that, that, you know, cultivating a healthy culture, it's something that I thought would be intuitive when I started as a faculty member. I thought, oh, well, as long as I know kind of what we want our culture to be, it will just happen. And it's like, no, you know, it takes intentionality. It takes building in practices that foster that culture. And it's, you know, it, it's something where we constantly need to work, right? You know, achieving, you know, a fully inclusive environment is a huge, huge goal. And because we're all human beings, there will always be challenges to that, but we can always constantly be addressing those challenges, learning from them, putting new practices in place, and, and moving forward, and most importantly, listening to each other and hearing the lived experiences of each other, hearing about the challenges that others are facing, and taking those seriously and addressing them. Yeah, uh, all right, yeah. So maybe we are closing tonight here, and we have a few questions. The first one, how you figure ac- whether academia is for you or not? This is a question I think even grad student or under student, undergrad students struggle with. Should I continue in academia or I have to go to industry or maybe start my own business? How we figure out whether this is the right path for you or not? Sometimes people go for a PhD because that's the normal path I have to go. And maybe it's comfortable to you not to go outside uh, university for the real world. So I don't know how do you see uh, this question and what could be the answer? How you figure out whether academia is for you or not? So I'll start by saying that um, to put a finer point on that is that academia, your academic jobs aren't just one job, that within academia, there's so many different jobs and there's so many different types of institutions. And so someone who might not be interested in being a faculty member at a large research intensive university might be interested in being a faculty member at a smaller teaching intensive university or vice versa, uh, because those jobs actually do look quite different. And so really recognizing that they're the breadth of the jobs that are available. And then I would say learning about 
the good things and the bad things about it. You know, every job has things that are really great about it. And every job has things that are really challenging about it. And, you know, this is taking, obviously choosing your career path is a really complicated thing. And, and it, you know, but in some ways it is boiling it down to which set of good things are most important to me and which set of challenges or bad things do I find most tolerable or, yeah. you know, least terrible and then following the path. And, and the way that you can find that out is just by talking with people who are in that job. You know, even as I think about some of the, the places that I might want to go in my career, I still uh, constantly reach out to people who are in those jobs and say, you know, hey, I really admire your career path. I have aspirations to be where you are. Would you be willing to talk with me? And I always ask them about their story of how they ended up there. And one of the questions I always ask is, you know, what do you love most? And what's the greatest challenge about this job? And then you can take all of those and say, okay, you know, and so just as a, a very basic example of that, in academia, one of yeah. the amazing things is you have all of this autonomy about how you do your job and the research that you do. Uh, but the downside is that you have constant financial insecurity as to how you're going to fund that research. You know, every month it's a new grant application that needs to go out and you're always stressing about what happens if, you know, you know, not all of them will get funded, but what happens if we have a really bad run and we all of a sudden for a couple of years don't get any of them funded? You know, what happens then? You know, these are the things I, I lay awake and think about it two in the morning or whatever. Um, you know, that's the downside. Um, whereas in industry, you know, again, there's a broad range of industry jobs, but in general, you know, the positive side is, wow, I could do something that, you know, is much more likely to be translated into something that directly impacts people. You know, if you go and work for a large pharmaceutical company, you're more likely to invent a drug that actually then makes it into the market than if you're in academia. Um, but then the downside is that you, and you don't have to worry about money um, as much, but the downside is that you don't have as much autonomy. You know, if your company decides that a project is no longer financially viable, um, even though you're very passionate about it, you are not working on that project anymore, most likely. And again, these are, are limiting things. And so, you know, for me, it was, okay, the autonomy is really, really important to me. You know, do I love the financial insecurity of always applying for these grants and wondering what the future holds? No, but I find that more palatable than the downside of, of not having the autonomy that I have. Yeah, yeah, that's also a good comparison, yeah. So do you think ego is important for the researcher? Ego, sometimes important. Sorry? I'm curious um, why, what, what you think with, um, when you think ego of, of... Yeah. yeah, sometimes if you have new ideas or maybe um, argument, do you think ego sometimes is important to deliver your ideas? Um, you know, I would say, at least in my experience, my ego tends to yeah. be one of my worst enemies, but I think confidence is important. I would say, yeah, confidence is actually really important because often the thing that takes the most confidence mm -hmm. is to actually admit that an idea is not good or to stop doing something because you have to have, you know, it, it's great to have confidence to advance new ideas, to be able to walk into a room and think differently from everyone and articulate something different from everyone, even though people 
might not like what you have to say, that certainly takes confidence. But it also takes confidence to then when confronted with more information or other thoughts and ideas mm -hmm. that maybe then prove that your idea is not worth pursuing or that you're, you're incorrect. It takes a heck of a lot of confidence to say, okay, you know, you're right. I'm going to not pursue that idea or I'm going to change it or I need to reevaluate my thoughts on this. And, and it takes that confidence because you have to be able to know that, okay, that, that, that doesn't mean I'm not a good researcher. And also I will have plenty more ideas. And so in that sense, I think it's especially important. Yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice I was given to you and was like a changing? Advice that was given to me was life-changing. Yeah. Oh, so many. I think the one, I talk about this piece of advice often, but I just can't yeah. talk about it too much. And it essentially boils down to, you know, don't compare your first draft to someone's finished product. Mm. You know, what this might look like is, you know, on the first day of my postdoc, I looked around and thought, wow, everyone here knows all of this stuff and understands each other's projects and knows how to use all of the equipment in this lab. And I don't. And so I don't belong here. And it was really a hit to my confidence, especially because I had changed fields quite dramatically. I thought, oh my goodness, I don't belong here. But then just realizing like, no, every, you know, once you're around for a while, you realize, no, everyone on their first day, you know, doesn't know quite as much and doesn't understand everyone's project and doesn't know how to use the equipment, but they get there. You start and you grow your knowledge and you grow your capabilities every day and you get there. And this was really great advice from my PhD advisor. In fact, when I was, I was telling him, you know, I really want to be a faculty member, but I look at what you do and I just can't do what you do. And he said, yeah, of course you can't, not right now. You know, I'm a faculty member. You are, you know, I've just graduated grad school. And so of course you can't do what a senior faculty member can do uh, or established faculty member, but you'll get there. If you keep pushing yourself, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, every day um, and, you know, using good strategies of finding great mentors, you know, working to learn new things, advocating for yourself, um, then every day you grow. And, and as you progress through your career, you're able to do more and more and more. And these things where you used to look at people ahead of you on the career path and think I can never do that, then all of a sudden you find that you're doing that. And, um, and so, so often we, we just look ahead and think that, you know, people who are ahead of us have just always had that level of skill and don't realize it's like, no, when they were at your career stage, they were very much so in the same position as you. And it's just yeah. this consistent process of growth. Yeah, that's really wonderful advice. Yeah, I think it's very important as well. Yeah. So thanks so much again for Professor Jan for your time and really thoughtful and enjoyable to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. And thank you again for everything you're doing for the community with this podcast and on Twitter and everywhere else. Thank you.